You're listening to a podcast of New Covenant Church. Join us Sundays at 10.30 a.m. in Pompano. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, New Covenant Church. It is good to be with you. I love you, Pastor. Um, we do spend time complaining together. <laughs> um, no, but in... in able to encourage one another, and, uh, and so I'm grateful that um, I was able to just be a part of this this week. You know, sometimes uh, as a pastor, I know it's nice to be able to just not um, have that relentless wave of, uh, and we'll be talking about this today a little bit, but this relentless wave of preparing a sermon, so it's, uh, uh, I hope this is a gift to him. And this is only the second time that I have been able to preach uh, to a group of real live humans in uh, about six months, and so we're going to be here a while. Um, I'm not going to let this go very easily, but uh, we, I'm really thankful um, to, to be with you today. Um, next week, uh, I hear that you are going to be starting a series in James, and uh, James is written to a suffering people. And so as we are going to, uh, you're going to hear this next week and, and begin in this series, we want to tee this up. And, uh, and deal a little bit with suffering out of Acts chapter 27. Now, I'm not going to read the entire passage um, that the, the text is out of today, but if you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts 27. We'll be referencing some of the, um, some of the scriptures in this. And so, um, again, thank you for, for just letting me be here today and sharing this with you. We do want to get to the gospel. Ultimately, that is why we are here. The gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ. How do we get there out of a little obscure text in Acts chapter 27 that seems a bit like a throwaway? It tells us about a shipwreck. Um, And so we'll try to find our way there. Several years ago, um, my wife and I watched the HBO miniseries, The Pacific. Has anybody ever seen The Pacific? Or maybe you've seen the precursor to The Pacific, The Band of Brothers. Um, but it, it, both, both of these miniseries dealt with um, World War II and uh, followed a group of troops, uh, mostly U.S. troops, around. Um, the Pacific was about the, um, the Allied forces in the Pacific theater during World War II. And through this series, uh, this series was intense, full of action. It was well done. Cinematography was amazing. But one of the things that I remember about this was how they depicted the Japanese army. It was an incredible depiction because the thing that you got from them is that they were relentless. No matter what came their way, no matter how much they were being pushed back, they kept coming. Huge numbers would not give up. And we would finish each episode and I would go to bed because we watch it like late at night. And I I just remember going to bed after every episode and I'm like, (sighs) exhausted, I'm exhausted. It just made me tired because it was relentless. One attack after the other. That word relentless, I've been thinking a lot about it lately. Here's what it means. It means oppressively constant, persistent, continual, nonstop. I've just described the last eight months of 2020, haven't I? Just oppressively constant and persistent, and it seems like one thing after the other. If it isn't coronavirus, it's politics, or it's my crazy neighbor, or what, like it's all, all sorts of things, and, and we, my wife and I look at each other all the time and go, 2020, right? Just, just one more thing. Why wouldn't it happen then? 
for many of us this year has been relentless. And I, as a pastor, get a front row seat to a lot of people's lives. And uh, many of, uh, of the people that I talk to in my congregation say, I mean, 2020 has been rough, but 2020 has been just one more thing. It's been one more year in what feels like several years of relentless. Um, and when we experience hardship and suffering, this is what we do. We ask questions like, why? God, why, why is this happening? Why is this happening? God, where are you in all this? And maybe this one that's coming to you a lot lately or you have been thinking about a lot lately, when is this going to end? When will things just be back to normal? But let's be honest, when you think about normal, normal's not that great sometimes either, is it? That's just the reality of our lives. What seems to make this year harder is that we're experiencing these things with this uh, lack of robust community. Even, Adam, you just said, I wish we could hug one another. Anybody a hugger out there? There's a few, okay, some of you. I mean, some of you are like coming in ready. Some of you are like, I'm doing it anyway. But, but some of you are, are really longing to have that, that kind of presence. It's not just about being in the same room with one another, but it's somehow to be in these relationships that are super important to us. And, and when we talk about our, being a part of a church community, the difficulty during this time is that many things in which, many ways in which we engage with one another in the gospel, it's been missing. And so for us, the one thing that we have to be able to engage in a way that says, I am living out days and days of bad news, I need good news, I need the good news of the gospel embodied in relationship, these things that we really value in community, and these things are not happening in ways that have been meaningful in several months, and so it makes it harder. David Brooks, columnist for the New York Times, he wrote this a few years ago. I believe this is going to be on the screen. We live in a culture awash in talk about happiness. In one three-month period last year, more than a 1,000 books were released on Amazon on that subject. But notice this phenomenon. When people remember the past, they don't only talk about happiness. It's often the ordeals that seem most significant. People shoot for happiness, but feel formed through suffering. Now, I'm just going to set this up. What I believe is that these uh, past few months, though they have been difficult, I do believe that we will look back years from now and go, there's something significant that God was doing in the midst of this. Do you know that, and this is going to be in my first point, but you know God's not wringing his hands right now, right? You know he's like, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how I'm going to fix this. This is good. See, our text today is the last part of the book of Acts um, in which we see multiple instances of suffering in the life of the apostle Paul. In, uh, er earlier in this, this passage, because this passage of Acts 27 really starts in Acts chapter 21, where Paul was arrested for preaching Jesus and people didn't like him preaching Jesus, and so they come after him, and he's angering a lot of people, and so as he's arrested, he goes through a series of defenses before the courts, and eventually he appeals to Caesar in Rome, and because he doesn't believe he's going to get a fair trial, he wants to go to Caesar, he wants to make his appeal before Caesar, and well, here you go. This is going to be quite the journey, and in Acts 27, it says that Paul was put into a boat with a lot of other people. And uh, there were other prisoners, there were soldiers, there were sailors, and they head off. And in Acts 27, verse 14, it says this, But before long, a fierce wind 
called a Northeaster if you're from New England, a Nor'easter, rushed down from the island, and, and since this ship was caught and unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. The scripture tells us eventually that this Nor'easter uh, was something, it's like a hurricane, it lasted for about 14 days. I remember a few years ago, uh, was, it, was, it, was it last year? When uh, the hurricane that just pummeled uh, Puerto Rico, and, and, and I remember it, it being um, uh, just sitting over this, and we, we thought, man, this, this has been a storm that is just unrelenting, and it lasts for days, and it didn't last two weeks. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a, a huge hurricane landing on us and lasting for two weeks straight? So think about this. Use this as a metaphor. This is a metaphor of kind of where we've been. Anyway, emotionally, sometimes suffering feels like this. It feels like a 14-day hurricane that just will not let up. And in verse 20, it said, For many days neither sun nor stars appeared, and the severe storm kept raging. And this is where, this is where we land. This is where when the storm is relentless, this is where we find ourselves. Finally, all hope was fading that we could be saved. When you face the relentless storm, you just feel like hope starts to fade. So hard. The storm, which was a major part of Paul's suffering, can represent all of our suffering. Every bit of suffering that we go through in this life can be called a storm. It's a, it's a great metaphor. And so that's how we're gonna use it today, especially in how relentless it can be and how it seems like often it has no real purpose. I mean, have you asked this during the season? Have you asked this maybe during a particular season in your life? You go, I, I just don't understand the purpose of this. That's why we ask God why. What's, what's the purpose? I cannot see it, therefore there must not be any. But remember, God is not wringing his hands. The text tells us that there was something behind it. There was some kind of purpose behind the storm, that God was sovereign, even in the relentless suffering. And Acts 27, verse 22 through 25, Paul says this, now I urge you to take courage because there uh, will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship. How about this? How can you make this promise, Paul? Well, for last night, an angel of God I belonged to uh, and served stood by me and said, don't be afraid, Paul. It's necessary for you to appear before Caesar, and indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. So take courage, men, because I believe God that it will be just the way it was told to me. That's encouraging, right? God shows up, says this is what's gonna happen. Paul says, I believe him. Paul's telling the men in the middle of their fear, God is sovereign. He says no one will die. We're gonna believe him. But then catch this. Down in verse 30 and 31, this is not on, gonna be on the screen, but we're told at one point, these sailors, they were still scared, because you can imagine this thing unrelenting for, for two weeks. They attempted to escape from the ship. They let down a lifeboat. Paul finds out what they're doing. He calls out to them and he says, wait a minute, he tells the centurion, the captain of the guards, uh, unless these men stay with the ship, you can't be saved. Wait a second, which is it? You just told us that God said that no one was going to die. But then when they start to let down this little lifeboat, he says, whoa, wait a second. If you let down the lifeboat, you're going to die. Well, which is it? Is God really sovereign in this or do I have a lot of control in this? It's got to be one or the other, right? Either God's in charge or I am. Either God's sovereign or what I do really matters. Which is it? 
We're an either-or people. We can't wrap our heads around the fact that it's both. Paul is a both-and kind of guy. In other words, Paul is assuming that on the one hand, every single thing that happens, every small thing, every bad thing included is determined by God, and yet what we're doing matters. We're responsible for the choices we make. We're responsible for the consequences. But this isn't Paul's idea. This is all through Scripture. Now, here's the thing. I'm, I'm saying this. This gets into like some heavy doctrine. I get it. But I'm doing this because it matters. It matters in the midst of your suffering when you say, I don't see a purpose in this. Okay. But just because you don't doesn't mean there isn't. There are a, a few ideas in Scripture. The book of Hebrews was written to a group of people who had suffered a lot. James is written to a group of people who have suffered a lot. In Hebrews 12, 7, and then verse 11, um, the writer says this, Endure suffering is discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that the father does not discipline? Verse 11, no discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. But later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So there are two ideas in Scripture about suffering and God that complement each other. They're not opposed. They're not opposed. There's the perspective that says evil and suffering in this world, God hates it. God did not create evil and suffering in this world. Genesis 1 and 2 show us the world that God created. Genesis 3 shows us what happens when we, our first parents and really us, brought evil and suffering into the world. The rest of the Bible is about God going to incredible lengths to show us what he's going to do to rid the world of evil and suffering. So in Hebrews 12, when we read this word discipline, this word is the word pedia. It's where we get this word pediatrics. When we take my baby daughter, she's not a baby anymore, when we take my little daughter to the doctor, she's in the midst of times where she has to get things like finger pricks. You ever had a finger prick? If I have to go for any needles, I am 40, what, two years old? I don't know, however old I am. I go to the doctor, I'm terrified. My, like, my heart starts racing when I see a needle. When my daughter does it, she doesn't understand. And we're going, no, honey, it's because we love you. She doesn't buy it. But there's a purpose. A pediatrician is concerned for the overall health and flourishing of my child. At least that's what they say. She doesn't buy it, but that's what they say. God has a purpose and design in the storms. Ultimately, God's the ultimate doer here. God's not a passive observer in our lives. While the storms of evil beat us up, God is sovereign over, over those things. God's not coming to his children late in the attack and saying, I think I can do something about this. Just hold on. John Newton says this, everything is necessary that he sins, and that nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Everything is necessary that he sins, and nothing can be necessary that he withholds. I'm just going to give you two um, places in Scripture that I think it helps us see uh, what is ultimately happening in this behind the scenes. God's really the doer. God's really doing something in the world. In Job, the book of Job is about a guy who loses everything. He loses his money and his family and most of his health. And we see that Job also moves um, toward God and he's not really poised about it. Throughout the whole book, 40 chapters, all he does is yell and cry and question God. Why? And argue and shake his fist at God. 
And you're reading this thing and you're going, I don't think he's doing very well. And at the end, God shows up and he vindicates him. And he says, you've done a good job and affirms him and rewards him and heals him and rebukes his friends for criticizing. You're like, what? And do you remember this one part at the end of the book of Job? Or, or in, in Job, uh, it, it said at the beginning, excuse me, that uh, Satan afflicted Job with sores, chapter 2, verse 7. And in verse 10, um, his wife asked him, she says, why don't you just curse God and die? And he says, shall we accept the good from the Lord and not the evil also? Should we not accept the good from God and not accept diversity? And, and the the author of the book of Job commends Job by saying, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And in James 5.11, the writer says this, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose, the, the telos, I love that word, the purpose, the long game of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. When he looked at Job's life and we looked at looked at what God was doing in it. He said, you know what God was doing in this, even though Job was going through incredible hardship, the telos of God, the long game, the purpose, was that God was being compassionate and merciful to him, ultimately. Okay, so, so there's one. Do you remember in Genesis, um, there's a story of a, a, a man named Joseph. You remember what Joseph went to? It went through his brothers, sold him into slavery into Egypt. He goes through incredible hardship. He's, he's arrested. He's lied about. There's all sorts of things that happen to Joseph. Do you remember at the end of the story? Joseph gets to this place where he is now elevated through all the hardship that he went through. He ends up being elevated into a high position. There's a famine in the land, and Joseph is in a place where he can actually help with the famine, not, not just help, but he ends up saving people. He ends up saving his family. Like all of the extreme hardships in his life were the things that actually were the, the reasons why he was in the position he was in. Do you remember what he says to his brothers? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant to use to destroy me, God meant for my good. And not only he meant for my good, but obviously he meant for the good of the known world. Incredible. Incredible. Tim Keller puts, this, puts it this way. There is a brokenness outside of you. Disease, conflicts, racism, war, injustice, need, and poverty, all real terrible things. And there's a brokenness inside of you. There's foolishness in me, pride in me, selfishness, cowardice, a lack of self-knowledge, all sorts of things in me. And that God brings external brokenness into connection with your internal brokenness at exactly the right time and exactly the right place and in exactly the right proportion to move you from blindness to self-knowledge, from cowardice to courage, from selfishness to generosity. I mean, think about what kind of, if you're honest about the story of Joseph, he was kind of a jerk with his brothers. I mean, there's kind of a reason they threw him on a well. He wasn't real sweet. He wasn't just a victim here. And yet, and yet God brought into his life external brokenness and internal brokenness at exactly the right time to do something incredible. This is part of the Christian view of suffering. Most of the time, there are two ways that we deal with suffering. Some people say like this, I'm not going to let this get to me. This too will pass. I'm going to keep my head up. Some of you have looked at, at, at this season this way. Some of you have ignored it. I challenge you, don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. Look at what God is doing in this thing. Ask God, what are you doing in this? 
But some of you also, on on another end of the spectrum, become weary. And you say things like, no good could possibly come out of this. There can't be any good. There can't be a God. I don't believe in God who would allow evil and suffering in the world. It's ridiculous. Because I can't see any reason. As I've said, there must not be a reason. But again, the words of our dear Tim Keller, says, he says this, despair. This is hard, by the way. Some of you, if you're going to come up and yell at me after this one for quoting this, this is the quote. Despair is always an act of arrogance. The only way, and Keller says this, not me, so. Despair is always an act of arrogance. The only way that you can be in despair is if you are absolutely sure that since you can't see any reason, any way, anything good that can come out of this, then there must not be any. Despair is for omniscient people because you would have to be omniscient to lose all hope. That's tough. A couple years ago, uh, I watched a movie. Um, Many of you saw it, Slumdog Millionaire. Won eight Academy Awards in 2009. Um, the story is poverty and violence and crime, child exploitation. It's this backdrop for a beautiful story between Jamal, this young boy from the slums of Mumbai, India, and Latika, this girl he met in the same slum. Jamal and Latika were tragically separated for years, and after the, um, they, they saw each other briefly, she's taken again, and he never stops trying to find her and in, against impossible odds. They finally are reunited and in the last scene of the film, Jamal and Latika finally reunite, and he pulls back this long yellow scarf that's wrapped around her head, her face. And when he pulls it back and he sees that her face has been disfigured, he sees this scar, and she looks down in shame, and Jamal, he, when he sees this scar, he, do you remember what he does? He kisses the scar. The first, the first kiss is not the embrace that you would think. He goes up and he kisses the scar It's as if somehow the scar is at last redeemed and somehow made beautiful. And the power of this story lies uh, in the depth of their love, forged in the context of years of injustice and evil and suffering and separation. And that last little moment could not have happened had she had no scar. The scar was the part that was being redeemed. Now catch this. If you're a Christian, your scars, or to use the metaphor we've been using, your storms actually can reveal the power of the gospel. When we question God's love in the storms, we look at the cross of Jesus. This is where we're going to get to the gospel. See, your scars, one metaphor, your storms, another. Either way, those are the things that ultimately when we look, it it reveals the redemption that God could and would do in the gospel. Even though the cross cannot tell you the reason for the storms, the cross can tell you what the reason isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he doesn't care. Because look at what the incarnation is. The incarnation is that God cares. How much does he care? He entered in. Amen? He entered in. The cross of Jesus is the centerpiece of the gospel. See, the bad news of the gospel is this. You know, the the gospel has bad news. It is good news, but it has a bad news side. Before you get to the good news, you have to see the bad news. The bad news is this. Our sin separates us from God. 
Our sin puts us on a collision course for ultimate destruction. Away from the presence of God, eternally. There's nothing that we can do to navigate ourselves away from the storm. The ultimate storm. And on the cross, Jesus did not just experience physical suffering, but he was experiencing ultimate, cosmic, absolute, utter, infinite storm on our behalf. Everything that we deserve was put on Jesus, our sin and our shame and our guilt, our punishment, so that when we trust him, when we receive him, we can receive everything that he deserves, the full, loving presence of God. I love that. Think about what that means. Everything that he deserves was put on us because everything that we deserve was put on him. Imagine what that means. The redemption, the ultimate redemption that you're in. And then you ask, God, why don't you care? Wow. What does he have to do? He loves us that much and he hates suffering that much that he is willing to come and be plunged into our ultimate storm and experience it so that one day he can rid all suffering and all evil without ending us. Amen. Such good news. Because Jesus went into the ultimate storm for us, the only storm that could really consume us, then we can be sure that he's walking with us in our personal storm. Really, if he's taken care of our ultimate storm, we can have the assurance that he has not forgotten about us in 2020. We don't have to forge our own way. We don't have to bootstrap our way through this. Most of us have really terrible bootstraps anyway. He really is sovereign even in the midst of where we are right now. If you're a Christian, no matter how badly the waves are crashing, he's with you. And when you remember this, you actually can go through this without losing hope. You don't lose hope even when the storm is relentless. I love this. I'm just going to wrap it up this way. Think about everything that Paul went through. There was a list that he made at one point that said, I'm shipwrecked three times, been beaten several times, misunderstood, cast aside. I mean, let's be honest. A lot of us, some of you have gone through extreme hardship. Some of us are just whiny. We haven't gone through a lot, but we look at things like what Paul went through. Okay, we're not comparing here, but, but if we look at the things that he went through, and then you read something like Romans 8, 28. Think about it. Let me, let me start with verse 18. For I consider, think about how crazy this is that he would say this after all he's been through. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that, that will be revealed in us. The weightiness of this, not worth the weight of glory. Nope. you imagine I mean, God help us to be in that place where we would say, you know what, the sufferings at this present time, I mean, it's not worth comparing. We, all, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God who are called according to his purpose. So, so Paul had that tell us. He understood. He understood that long game of God in this. And so he, he was able to say things like this. I'm not him. I whine. Adam can tell you. I mean, I like just a little thing. And I feel like all hope is lost and I've just like, everything's falling apart. Ask my kids. They'll tell you the truth. Please don't. But I want, but I want, why don't you hear this last scripture because this is one that really gets me. 
2 Corinthians 4.17, that Paul could write something like this in his life after experiencing all that he's experienced. I mean, if anybody had a chance to just go, I'm just gonna lay, I'm gonna roll over and just rest a while. And he says this. He calls it our momentary light affliction. Now he's just being condescending. Our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. I remember a couple years ago, Um, in the midst of all of the unrest that we have experienced recently, it's not just been a recent thing. I remember um, Tabidi Anubwile, some of you know who he is. He's a pastor in the D.C. area. Uh, he spoke at a conference I was at a couple years ago, and he was talking about, actually he was teaching through James, and he uh, had this, this line on suffering that I'll never forget. Um, to use this word, and for him to use this word was a, an, a powerful word because of um, the word slavery holds such a heavy weight, even in our culture now. And he says this, your suffering, your suffering is your slave. The next time suffering enters your room, say to it, Welcome, my slave. Produce for me the glory that God intends. It's only in the gospel, only in the hope of the gospel that you know that Christ has entered your ultimate storm could you look at present suffering and say, welcome, produce for me, produce for my family, produce for our church the glory that God intends. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we are powerless to say something like that in and of ourselves. It would only be in the power of the gospel that we would have hope. To look at the hardest things and say, welcome. Welcome, light, momentary affliction. Produce for us the weight of glory that God intends. God, would you do that? Would you empower us for the, with the gospel to be able to look and see and taste that you are good, that you have not forgotten us, and that all things you are working for our good and your glory. So do this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.